Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Macabre for Mortals. I'm your host Claudia and this week we'll be taking a look at the case of Sophie Leonette. This is the second part in the series that I am covering on domestic violence and how easily it can turn to murder. But I'm also trying to take a different look at a few unique cases which show the widespread that domestic violence can go and the different victims that it can take. If you have not already listened to the first episode, the case of Christopher Donnelly, then please pause this and go back because at the start of that one, I cover the different types of domestic violence and how they can affect each people. Today's case looks at domestic violence that was perpetrated by another woman. Women as the aggressor in domestic violent cases are rare, but they're certainly not unheard of, and certainly they do commit these acts for very different reasons to men. It is widely known that women do not usually kill by using acts of violence. There are very few anomalies to this, and they're usually broadcast out in the media, and these women seem to stick out in our minds. Ones like Eileen Wuornos, for example. White females of all ages have the lowest conviction rates of any racial or age groups. In a study by Burton et al. in 1998, they found that low levels of self-control are associated with criminal activity. And many have offered this as an explanation for the gender difference in the numbers of convicted criminals. Some of the differing explanations include that men's evolutionary tendency towards risk and violent behaviour, gender differences in activity, social support, or even gender inequality. David Rowe, Alexander Vazoni, and Daniel Flannery, the authors of Sex Differences in Crime, Do Means and Within Sex Variation Have Similar Causes focus on the widely acknowledged fact that there is a large sex difference in crime. More men and women commit crimes. This fact has been true over time and across cultures. Also, there is a greater number of men that commit serious crimes resulting in injury or death than women. In a study that looked at the self-reports of delinquent acts, researchers identified several sex differences by looking at the sex ratios. For every woman, 1.28 men drink alcohol, which is a large influencer in deviant behavior. For every woman, 2.7 men committed the crime of stealing up to $50. And lastly, for every woman, 3.7 men steal more than $50. Also, more males are involved in homicides as both the perpetrators and victims than females. And furthermore than that, one male is more delinquent than another for mainly the same reasons that men typically engage in criminal acts more than women. I want to just point out that when I was um, talking about sex there, this is what is mentioned in 
the research and in the literature, I understand that there is some variance and I do prefer to use the vocabulary around gender rather than sex as we know that it can be quite fluid. However, one study has noted more substantial differences in the treatment and the behaviour of defendants in the courts on the basis of gender. Female criminologist Frances Heidison postulates that for judges and juries, it is often impossible to isolate the circumstances that the defendant is a woman from the circumstances that she can also be a widow, a mother, attractive, or may cry on the stand. Furthermore, male and female defendants in court have reported being advised to conduct themselves differently in accordance with their gender. Women in particular recall being advised to expect mute passivity, whereas men are encouraged to assert themselves in cross-examinations and testimony. One thing that I think that we can all sort of relate back to is in court is Jodie Arias, how she tried to make herself look more demure by she dyed her blonde hair back brown, she tried to mutant down all of her looks to make herself look um, more plain Jane attractive, more than sexy, hi, how are you? Also, um, I just think that that's something that is perpetrated in the musical Chicago when they say that you should dress more like a woman because it'll make the jury more sympathetic towards you. It's something that is very common and people do seem to know about and it does play up to gender stereotypes, whether it actually makes the effect or not. I'm not entirely sure that it does make that much of a difference, but according to this case, it shows that they do have a slightly different treatment, but it's one case. Just in general as well, in recent years, females have only accounted for 15% of overall committed legal offences. I want you to bear that in mind during my retelling of this case. Sophie Lionette moved to London from her home in the northeast of France in January 2016 when she was just 21. She made this move as many French girls do to be an au pair in a busy London household and to improve her English in the hopes that she could move up her career ladder. When I personally lived in London, I knew that there were many au pairs who lived in households of two working parents in order to lighten the domestic load. Many European youths traveled to London to get jobs in hotels and as au pairs to be able to improve their already very good English. Most of the time, it's just their colloquialism that they need to get their language tongue around rather than anything else. They really put us native English speakers to shame with their ability to move from one language to another streamlessly. I I certainly could not go to um, another foreign country and try and live in a household with a language that I know very little of. That's something that I should really be able to improve on. 
but they have very good English to start with. In London, or any busy British city, parents can work long hours and childcare centres often do not provide the long hours needed for the care. And childcare centres, especially in London, are very expensive with little to no government funding. An au pair to most families is a good option as they can have someone to live in the home to look after the children and often do a few domestic chores. They tend to exchange the service to the allow the au pair to live in their house, eat their food, and also given a little money as a wage. Especially in London, rent and mortgage prices are high enough. I personally used to pay just a little over £500 a week just to live in a room in London. And that's just makes me sick thinking how much I actually used to pay there. Most families will treat their au pair with respect in order that their children do the same. But unfortunately, some families do take advantage of having their au pair. It has been noted by some au pairs that they can actually work up to 70 to 80 hours per week with little to no time off. And then the exchange becomes unfair and the au pair is being taken advantage of in a foreign country. Sabrina Coudia a French mother of two hired Sophie to come and live in the suburbs of Southfields in London. Sabrina was a fashion designer and a makeup artist. She was an attractive lady who had a long and well-documented relationship with Mark Walton, who founded the boy band Boyzone. She was often seen at the fashion weeks in London and Paris and lived a very glamorous lifestyle. She operated in celebrity circles and she would not be seen buying groceries or at the parents' associations at her children's schools. Southfields is a suburb just outside of Wimbledon. And at the time she lived with her partner, Usin Muduni, in a 900,000 pound house. To put that in perspective, this is about 1.8 million Australian dollars and about 1.2 million US dollars for a house which is about a four bedroom house which is semi-detached so it is actually attached to another house so it's not the grandest of houses but it's still a really nice house and in a very good area just outside of Wimbledon is a very expensive area to live as it's quite near to London city centre and it's on a good tube line. Although it was many years since Sabrina had split from Mark Walton, she still had an unhealthy obsession with him. After they had split, Sabrina had been paid a sort of alimony support from Mark to pay for her flat, but eventually he did stop this. In retaliation for stopping the payments on the flat, Sabrina would post accusations on Facebook against Mark, 
but eventually, outwardly, she seemed to have moved on with her life. She then rekindled her on-off relationship with Usim. He did all of the running, and it was obviously infatuated with Sabrina. If she called, he would drop everything and go. A short time after Sabrina and Usim moved to Southfields, they hired Sophie, who could be regularly seen by the local shopkeepers with the children and picking up all the groceries. Sophie was a full-time carer, and most of the people who knew her would say that she was very shy, gently spoken, and a lovely young lady. She was well-mannered and very introverted, and did not have much of a life outside of her work. To Sabrina, Sophie was invaluable. She needed her to be able to get on with her work and her social life. Sabrina being into fashion and makeup artists and going to fashion week, she needed to have someone who could be there at night time and Sophie gave her that freedom. Every day, Sophie was seen taking the children to school and back and parents and locals saw very little of Sabrina and it was known that Sophie was doing all the work. As I mentioned before, au pairs need to be integrated into the family and made to feel like part of the family and not in isolation. Despite the hours of working from daylight till sundown, Sophie stayed with Sabrina. She could not know the horrors she would soon be in for. Sophie was caught up in a developing nightmare. She had not been working for Sabrina for very long. Before the subject, before she became the subject of a very strange and rather outlandish allegations that were made against her. Sabrina became convinced that Sophie was having a relationship with Mark Walton, Sabrina's ex-boyfriend, when in fact they had never even met. The delusions that Sabrina had in relation to Sophie and Mark were truly extraordinary. They had no basis in fact. In fact, Mark was not even in the country at the time that Sophie was there. He was living in Los Angeles. As Sabrina's delusions worsened, so did the working conditions for Sophie. She wasn't paid. She was forbidden from communicating with the outside world. In fact, Sabrina started to claim that Mark was attacking the children as well as Sophie, when in fact, this was all nonsense. For whatever reason, the relationship that Sabrina had had with Mark grew into an obsession. She was living in the world of make-believe. Sabrina would be trying to get Sophie to confess that Mark had been in the house when she was not there, abusing the children, that he'd come and stayed the night, and they had been concocting plans to bring Sabrina down. The emphasis of the aggression that Sabrina had towards Mark started getting focused on Sophie. After a few months of living with Sabrina, 
Sophie was continually working 80 hours per week and being given little to no food. She would have come under the rules of modern slavery as they took her passport away from her and she was a prisoner in the house. She was beginning to be subjected to violence, but what was far worse was the cohesive control and the demands to admit that she was having an affair with Mark Walton. This would have totally worn her down. She was only allowed out of the house to drop and pick up the children. And this was the only times that locals would see her. They began to notice that she was wearing the same clothes. She was retreating even more into herself and she was becoming seriously underweight. Really, she was totally helpless. And what made matters worse than they already seem was the supporting role that Wasim gave to Sabrina. He completely bought into her fantasy. And this is where the real power and domination begins. Their relationship in this crime is along the lines of the folie adieu. This is when two people with a certain type of characteristics come together to commit a crime and basically make a perfect storm. The behaviors collude and cause utter chaos. And if these people had never met, then the crime might not have taken place. Sabrina and Hussein feel justified in their behavior by the very fact of one desiring the other. They have a connection physically. And with this, Usim is able to be manipulated by Sabrina. Sophie was being starved and given no money. The difference between two photos shows the torments a year can put on such a young girl. One photo was taken just before she left France. She is full-faced and smiling. I will put these photos onto the Instagram page so you can have a look. And in the second photo, taken mere weeks before her death, she is thin, pale, and empty of emotion. She had tried to make the best of a terrible situation that she was living in. Sophie, unfortunately, was a young and inexperienced lady. And she wasn't able to understand what was going on and how to get herself out of that situation. One of the problems early on in the relationship between Sabrina and Sophie is a clear power dynamic. Sophie is quiet and vulnerable and the perfect scenario for a victim as she is in a foreign country, does not know who to speak to or how to speak out about a situation. And Sabrina automatically recognizes this and takes advantage of the power that she holds. For 12 days before Sophie's murder, 
Sabrina interrogated her for hours and could be heard screaming, swearing and being physically abusive to Sophie. We know this because these were all filmed by Sabrina. These videos have not been released to the public as they are far too disturbing, but the transcripts are available. You can almost see the mindset of Sabrina here as she is so driven by her paranoid delusions that she believes that she is the victim and that Sophie is having an affair with her ex-boyfriend Mark. While Sabrina is doing this, she has her willing accomplice, you see him, by her side. And this shows to her that she is not a woman that is crazy and that her paranoia is unbelievable. In fact, she shows just how high her manipulation can go by bringing Yusim into the tirade of abuse. Sabrina was in fact filming these interrogations of Sophie in order to pass these to the police, when in reality all these accusations were the fabrication of a twisted and a completely delusional mind. As Sophie denies the allegations, the abuse becomes more and more physically violent. Sabrina would torture Sophie for hours on end to get a confession from her that fit her delusional narrative, where there was no solid basis. Even though all the way through these interrogations, Sophie continually says sorry and that nothing is going on. And this does not even register with Sabrina because she is so convinced that Sophie is deceiving her and sleeping with Mark. This is domestic violence since Sabrina is abusing someone in her own home. She is slowly deconstructing Sophie's sense of self, completely eradicating her self-esteem and removing all of her basic needs, like food, water, money, warmth, to a position where Sophie feels like she's living in a prison. Sabrina had worn Sophie so far down that she forced her into writing a letter that admitted to colluding with Mark, when none of this was true. In the end, on the 20th of December, 2000, September, sorry, 2017, Sabrina and Usim put Sophie in a bathtub and drowned her. Sophie's ordeal had ended in her murder. Torture by water, otherwise known as waterboarding, is one of the most powerful ways to torture a human. You are essentially plunging someone underwater until they can feel they can no longer hold on to consciousness. And then you bring them back up for breath and then plunge them again. Sophie's last moments would have been filled with absolute panic. And after the murder, 
Sabrina and Osim had sex mere feet from the body of Sophie to mark this occasion. The couple were now left with a problem, how to dispose of the body without detection. It was not until two days after Sophie's murder that Usim decided to take the suitcase where they had stored Sophie's body and cause a sort of distraction. The couple had decided that the best way to dispose of Sophie was to burn her body and disguise it by having a barbecue in their back garden to cover the smoke and the smell. This just shows how exceptionally foolhardy that the couple are. Because the barbecue is going to disguise nothing. The stench that came from the burning body triggered a call that was made to the London Fire Brigade. The fire that Osim had started to burn the body was getting bigger and getting dangerously near their neighbours' fences. And this actually caused the neighbours to call 999. When firefighters entered the property, they found a suitcase burning on top of a bonfire and Usim standing nearby cooking the meat on a barbecue. It was claimed in court that he told the firefighters that he was burning a sheep carcass in the suitcase and that's what was causing the bad smell. But firefighters who have unfortunately smelt burning of a human body did not believe Usim and took a closer look. They noticed the blackened frames of Sophie's glasses and some fingers and toes. The police were then called and when they retrieved what was left of Sophie's body, they thought at first that the victim was a child because she was so tiny and so emaciated. Sabrina had treated Sophie like she was not even human before or after she was murdered. Sabrina and Usim were soon taken into custody by police. Sabrina claimed she did not know Sophie's surname and that Sophie had left the house some days earlier. The autopsy could not determine how Sophie died, but they did show the injuries on her body that pointed to her being tortured for days and weeks before her death. They actually found five cracked ribs and a broken breastbone that had all happened weeks prior to her death. In court, the jury would hear about how obsessed Sabrina was with her ex-boyfriend, Mark Walton. He actually came into the court and he testified that she had reported to him, to police, over 30 times. 
falsely accusing of him sexually assaulting a cat, flying a helicopter over her house to spy on her, and using black magic. When in fact, he wasn't even in the country. During the trial, the interrogation tapes that Sabrina had filmed were actually played to the jury. The jury saw Sabrina ranting at Sophie and making all of these wild allegations. It was seen in these videos as well that Sophie barely spoke. And when she did, it was to say sorry. Usim had originally confessed to solely being responsible for Sophie's murder, but changed his story in court. He claimed that he had not been violent towards Sophie before the murder, but wanted to protect Sabrina because he knew that she was suffering with her mental health. In fact, she'd been diagnosed years before with a personality disorder. In the end, both Sabrina and Usim turned on each other and accused that the murder of Sophie was the other's plan. Sabrina here tells lies without any sort of conscience. And we need to remember that she only believes in the narrative that's going on in her own head. She has all the tendencies and traits of a psychopath but she does not have the calculating cleverness to deal with the details of the cleanup after the murder. And this is what ultimately got them found out. With all this chaos going on inside Sabrina's head, she does believe that she cannot be convicted for Sophie's murder. And this is shown by how quick she was to turn on Usim. She believes that she can talk the jury into seeing that she is the victim. This just shows the total callousness of her psychopathy. This case really hits me hard. I think the thing that hits me the most is the isolation that Sophie must have felt because she had nobody really around her and she didn't know any of the processes. It hits me so hard because that's something that I have actually dealt with personally is the isolation of being in a foreign country when you're dealing with people who are being domestically violent to you. Mine certainly didn't get to the point where Sophie's was, but it certainly could have as well. There is about 20 false starts in a lot of domestic violence cases where a victim will leave the abuser and then go back. Because as in this case, as Sabrina did, she broke down Sophie so much, she broke down her self-esteem. She refused her all her basic needs. 
and basically made her feel like nothing. Sophie was already introverted. And that's not her fault. That's just who she was. There's a lot of us who are introverts out there. But Sabrina saw that and took it to her advantage. And the perpetrators of the domestic of domestic violence seem to have this knack where they can see that part of your personality and they can take advantage of it instead of nurturing it and making you into something better. They break it down. They isolate you and they can essentially destroy you. Being destroyed doesn't necessarily mean murder. It can be losing your self-identity, which is destroying, which Sabrina definitely did to Sophie before she even murdered her. The reason why I covered this case as well and before I end it is to show you that domestic violence doesn't always have to be against a family member either. Like this was domestic violence because it was the au pair. She was looking after her children. She was in their house. She was definitely part of a family unit. And sometimes even with domestic violence, the person doesn't even have to live in the house. They can just be a member of the family who can be abusing from afar. I wanted to cover the case from last week and this one this week to show different victims of domestic violence. Last week with Christopher's that he was a male being abused by a female, which as I said at the beginning is very rare. And this one is even rarer with Sabrina domestically abusing someone that wasn't even a direct family member, but she definitely was being a domestic abuser. Sabrina was ultimately found guilty of killing Sophie. And both herself and Yusim were sentenced to a minimum of 30 years in prison without parole. Personally, I think it should have been life. For Sophie, her dream job led her to entrapment and murder. And her sentence is the worst of them all and the least deserved. My sources for this week were Wikipedia on the information of au pairs, um, the Government of Canada statistics, the Adult Correctional Statistics in Canada, the US Government statistics of the Adult Correctional Statistics in the US, Burton, Cullen, Evans, 
Dunaway and Gregory, 1998, Gender, Self-Control and Crime, a Journal of Research in Crime and Delinquency. Frontis Henderson, Women and Crime, the New York University Press. And the Lady Killies docker series on the Crime and Investigation Network. Next week, I'm going to be covering um, for the final part in this series is the case of Rosie Batty from Australia. This is one that is fairly recent and Rosie actually became the Australian of the year a few years ago and the work that she's been doing towards domestic violence here in Australia has been absolutely brilliant. We still have a very long way to go but she has been brilliant in trying to lead the way. Thank you for listening to another episode of Macabre for Mortals. If you like this podcast, please subscribe for more content. Please join our Facebook group, Macabre for Mortals podcast. And as I mentioned last week, I have started an Instagram page with some of the photos of the people involved in the cases to give a more visual impact especially with this week's case when I compared saying comparing two photos they will definitely be up there this page can be found under macabre for mortals or if you have any stories that you'd like me to cover or any feedback at all then please email them to macabreformortals at gmail.com Thank you for listening to this heavy episode. I hope you have a fantastic week. Bye.